Hello, I'm Lulu. Hello, I'm Lulu's mother, Sandra, and this is Inside the Jewel Box. Inside the Jewel Box is a podcast in which my mother and I meet with fascinating people from Aotearoa and inquire into the objects that give meaning to their lives. When my darling daughter suggested a podcast about the objects that give our lives meaning, I told her I'd love to hear the stories of those objects that people hold close. In the podcast, Lulu and I talk to wonderful people about objects they have loved, desired and mourned for. Join us in this conversation. This is Inside the Jewel Box. Welcome to episode three of Inside the Jewel Box. In this episode, we interview Rose Evans about her three chosen objects. Rose Evans, Te Ati Awa, is a museum consultant who specialises in the conservation of social history, art and cultural materials. She's got over 25 years of experience and commands a broad range of skills in conservation care and research, collection management and preventive conservation. Rose has a formidable expertise in objects and textile conservation of Taonga Māori. In 2012, she set up Object Lab to work collaboratively in this capacity right across the cultural sector with our leading national and regional museums, Marae, as well as historic houses. Hello Rose, it's great to have you with us. Hi Sandy. (laughs) Now, what is the first object you are going to talk about? I had a group of about five, but I whittled it down to three with your help. I found out that they're all um, so interconnected, it's strange. You know, it's quite strange to me to look back on it. So they'll link up as, as, I, as I talk about each one, you know, independently. So I starting off, you asked about uh, something I'd lost and I was going to talk about my um, great-great-grandmother's um, kahu kiwi, a kiwi cloak. It's a very large kākahu, and it was belonged to my great-great-grandmother called, um, her name was Mere Nako, and it, translation is uh, like the heart of a mere. So it's an old family name, a number of, number of the whānau are named that. And my daughter's, in fact, her middle name is Merenako. So it means something that is beautiful but also um, brutal. And uh, it, it can mean you know, swift and it can mean um, blunt. And all of those things, that's why I think it's a beautiful name. And she was aptly named that. She was the um, rangatira that came down from Taranaki. Uh, she's from Pukitapu Hapu, and she led her um, hikoi, the hikoi with her whānau, the first hikoi that uh, Te Atiawa made down the coast with Te Raupraha. So they joined up and they made that hikoi down and landed, after going through the down the coast, landed in um, uh, Whakatū, which is uh, top of the south, and she laid claim to, we don't really want to talk about what that means, but laid claim to um, a large amount of land in the top of the south. And uh, her, she named, um, well, there's Motueka, that's where our family Marias, and uh, our family church. You have a little Māori church there. 
and her, um, uh, the Urupas there as well with her. And uh, she, uh, so she's still revered. She still has her a huge mana. And uh, she had a lot of, um, a lot of her tongue was handed down through the, the family. And uh, she, uh, and the, my mother was brought up in the homestead, the old homestead. So I think, um, uh I think it's she's interesting because she's at that transitional time because she came down in the 1820s, so it was that early pre-colonial stage setting up because Taranaki was, you know, highly populated and there was a need for n- new resources and and movement out and joining up with Tarawaraha meant you had more protection moving down the country, and um, and she. Um, so she was an interesting time in in history. So her son, well, sorry, her um, her daughter was Medianako um, or Pare Katakata, and she ended up uh, marrying my uh, great grandfather called um, Huta Pamaraki Parker. It gets very complicated here, and he was um, uh, from um, she, he was Tiatiawa as well, and they had a arranged marriage, and uh, to solidify the, the, the hapu. And, um, and they lived in this big, uh, the big homestead in Whakarewa Street, and then my mother was brought up there. But when she was about five, they had a huge house fire, and uh, my grandfather had always been instructed to save the cloaks but in particular saved the kahu kiwi. So he had to go back and, um, as well as rescue my mother, he had to go back and go get the kahu kiwi and bring it out. So it was very, you know, very important to the family. And we, and I was, I graduated in it, and, um, uh, but unfortunately, uh, so it's always been passed down and family members have used it and, uh, you know, for important ceremonies. For, but one of my cousins has decided that she doesn't want to let anyone use it anymore. So she's taken sort of like a traditional sense of possession in that, not not a kaitiaki, but a more of a sort of European sense of possession and no longer allows it to be used. So, so that's a sad, so we've lost that. You know, I felt terrible because my daughter graduated last year and I couldn't, you know, get her to use it. We couldn't get her to wear it. Because uh, it's important, you know, to make a, have a connection back to you in your whakapapa. And, um, but I thought, look, it can turn out to be a, one of those things where taonga has become so contentious and the, the centre of so much conflict that you just have to let it go, otherwise it eats into you. So I, I, um, we have another cloak for my daughter. It's not the same though, but it's it's a matter of dealing with it. You know what what happens, and I'm sure it'll come back somehow back into the Fano. So it's sort of um, yeah, it's been a lesson in life really to just let it go. We still are her heitaki that she's wearing in this photo. We still have that, and that's it, um, held in trust for, at the Nelson Provincial Museum. So we can go and look at that. 
and um, and we have done, you know, with the family quite a lot to touch it and and um, actually I've got a photo over there. I should go get it of Mum wearing it. So that's a photo of Mum. That's me, of course, who've been particularly grouchy at the back, but with the, the rest of oh, the some of the whānau. Big. Yeah, that's really big, and the weird thing about it is it's not finished. So. Why is it not finished? We don't know, you know. That's the thing about Taonga, isn't it? You just never know. And it would have been on purpose because she wore it. She wore it. So there would have been a reason for that. Sometimes cloaks aren't finished. Sometimes, uh, you know, tukutuku aren't finished. And there's always a reason. It's not because they're not finished. It's because there's, something's been left out for a reason. And so. maybe that allows for another chapter. Yeah. Whakapapa. Yeah, that's true. You know, mm. it allows that space. Maybe mm. it's forward-looking. Maybe it is. Mm. Yeah. So it's um. So that was really about uh, something that was really important. You know, because as a conservator, I, I went and I trained, um, and I, I work with my mainly um Fakaido, but Tonga Māori, and that's my connection back. Sorry. Um, to my my whakapapa, so I so I manage, I, I work with a lot of taonga and uh, so to have, to have our family taonga is really important we don't generally collect anything because we don't know what it's it's provenance is yeah, so to actually be able to have something that is from your own whānau provenance is fantastic and a lot of people are creating that now themselves. They're, they're creating their own taonga now because life's changed, hasn't it? We've gone through a whole cultural regeneration and we don't have all of those issues like um, we had when I was young, you know, about... These date back to the 18, early 1800s. Yes, that's true. And, and, that, and that's important, but... So that so few Taonga did stay within whānau, you know, they were often given away or taken, that that you, somehow you have to deal with that notion of having whakapapa, so sometimes you have to recreate that, or well, people are doing that now, they're, they're making their own cloaks, they're making their own kite and tukutuku, because they just simply aren't within the whānau. We're very, very lucky to have... Um, retained uh, uh, quite a lot of taonga. And that's really because we were one of those early families. Yeah. And when going right back to the start of the story, when you said your, um, is it your grandfather went back into the burning mm. house, where would they have been kept? How, how were they kept in a, in a... Oh, they were in kept a in a big... Um, situation. Well, with our whanau, they were kept in the home, you know, because this was a time when... Uh, you know, it wasn't they, the marae was over the road, and the, so was the church. But the big, well, just down the road, the homestead was was they were quite a significant Maori family. You know, the Komatua, and, and so they held the the taonga themselves. And this was in uh, they she had well, Medinako had my um, great-grandmother, she had a lot of taonga and so did huta. So, and was often giving it away, you know, because that's about giving and receiving. And so mum said that when she was little, she was always giving 
people were requesting it, particularly Parker were requesting, like the doc, local doctors, for instance, would always say, oh, I'll, I'll do that if you give me a cloak or whatever. It was, it was a trade that was going on, but she'd often give them away because she was, they were, um, they had a, uh, a, a high status in the Māori, but also in the European community, so. And were they kept in boxes? Yeah, they were kept in a big, mum told me it was in a big wooden trunk, and that's because she remembers it as a little girl. So, so they, so they would keep them, and it was in, it was near her, because she was behind, trapped behind the piano and the, in the big living area, so they were in there. So, so I don't think that um, I think that there was it was a period of like, uh, uh, what is it? Po- it was in that colonial period, so it wasn't the same as it would have been if it was back in traditional pa site, for instance, where Tonga would be kept perhaps in a pātaka. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't like that. Because, you know, pātaka would often hold, it might hold food, but it might also hold weapons and uh, things of value. So so in this instance, it was a big, it was the big um, home, the homestead, because families had started going into la, you know, um, how do I say, they had started forming more whānau groups and, uh, and, Land was being sold off and and um, going under sort of a unit title because law had changed. So a lot of these whānau were were, were um, disintegrating. You know their connection with whā, with the whenua, their land, and I think in this case they still retained theirs. They retained a lot of the whenua, the land. They held that as valuable. The house burnt down though, but the land is still there, and little little home was rebuilt but um yeah it was it was uh it was a, a really significant homestead in the area I mean there are we even had to fitty visit I think with my um great-grandfather there was so and jumping to you you said you were at your graduation mm. was that unusual at that time or Oh, uh, it, well, it is it is unusual for people to have these old mm. taonga like this. I mean, I just, for instance, yeah, so there weren't many. I mean, I can assure you of that. But when I went to my daughter's graduation last year, oh, no, a few years back, oh, no, was it last year? Um, they all had um, their, their, all their cloaks are contemporary. They're all made by whānau family. One mother was telling me she'd, she had um, made a hawk feather um, cloak just from from the roadkill. And it was fantastic, you know, it was fantastic. But, you know, anything anything's possible now. In those days, you know, when I was, when did I, um, I graduated with that degree when I, she was two. So it was 20 years ago. So there were, and even now there wouldn't be, cloaks like this. I remember we went and we were nearby to Papa and one of the managers saw me and said, have you got one of the collection items on? (laughs) I said, no, I haven't. It's actually my family, my whānau collection. They were totally shocked. Are you going to leave it to the museum? I said, no. Are you kidding? 
<laughs> even though I'm a conservator and I work in a museum, but it was just astounded me that that was the perspective that I should give it to a museum. But um, yeah, and I mean, some people would have been, some people were shocked that I might wear it because it might damage it. But and as a conservator, that was at conflict with my European training. But it wasn't a conflict with mine because I feel that, you know, by wearing it, you continue to keep it alive. You know, you add to its its history and whakapapa. So, you know, I never found those issues problematic, but many people did. See, so, so it was pretty unusual. And it is unusual for, for families to still retain these uh, very special kākahu, you know, kahu kiwi. I think so. We're very lucky, but unfortunately, this one isn't accessible at this particular <laughs> stage. <laughs> we'll see what happens. And Rose, what does the kahukiwi actually look like and feel like to wear? Oh, it's um. Well, this particular one is huge, and it's obvi- and it's obviously data. Do you know it has the darting uh, around it, so it pulls around. You know, you wear it right around, and I couldn't wear it as. I couldn't wear it um, uh, as a front opening because it was just too big. And so I had to wear it um, so it went round my, um, you know, under my arm and up. And then it had to be uh, sort of wrapped over. And it's incredibly hot. It's incredibly hot and warm, you know, warm, and then it becomes too hot. And you can't take it off, and I have to be very careful when I'm wearing it. You know, when I'm sitting down, I really just wanted to take it off. It was too hot. It's extraordinary, isn't it? But the the muka, um, kaupapa, the, the, the backing, is really soft and silky. And um, and uh, and it's like wearing a silk, silk but, but it's got this huge layer of kiwi feathers. And, you know, the extraordinary thing about this cloak is it's actually in perfect condition. Well, it was at the time. And our Valerie Carson, who I worked with, she was a textiles conservator, she said, that is a tremendous cloak. I haven't seen anything of that standard. And is it one type of kiwi feather or would it have been... No, it's just one one. type, yeah. But it's laid in, you can see here, it's laid in different ways so that it has a life. You know, the feathers are laid so that there's a, like almost a river pattern across it. So they're not just stuck, you know, they're not just attached so that they fall down. They're attached to flow, you know, when you wear them. So in the slight breeze. Yeah, but also even when they even when it sits on, you can see here, there's a movement in the in the feathers. So they have a they have a um well they have a how do you say? There's a that's that's a movement in the in the direction of the Kiwi feathers, so they're not just pointing in one direction; they're pointing in a number of different ones, and it's and it's very, it's it's um, very purposeful as far as the weavers concerned. I mean, top of the south weavers were very good, or Taranaki weavers were very good, and they and they. Um, I was talking to my um, colleague Rangi Takanua, and she was saying that that silken type of treatment of the muka was definitely sort of top of the south um, character. You know, like a, um, it's a, what do you call it? Like a, um, 
It's a, you can see these identifying characters of different cloaks around the country and, and often when the, with the way the muka is um, treated, how it's treated to become a fibre, you know, a series of fibres, is different. Dif- weavers have different techniques. And is, would, is much known about the weavers in that early 1800 period? I don't think we do know so many so much about it. I think that the moment with the sort of cultural revival and research we we're noticing signatures of weavers. Like for instance, I worked on a I when I was um developing the Navy Museum up here, um we had a pew pew that uh that had been um worn by all the um captains on HMS New Zealand, you know. So it was three battles and they all lived and they had a prophecy with that pew pew and that, that he had to, the captain had to wear it into battle, right? So they never died and they never sunk the ship. So so it's got a huge legacy. But I talked to Maureen Lander about it. I said, what do you think about this pew pew? She said, well, it had a really interesting um, layer on the band which was like an early tarnacle and then I said what about these pieces and she said well isn't that funny you should say that Rose because those pew pew tags are missing and um, and I know where the other one is that's been made by that same weaver because those two are missing in that one as well and it's at the Bishop Museum and it's on page da da and it was, um, and it was a collection. It was a taonga of rangihiroas. Um, so, you know, weavers like her, like Maureen, can just sometimes just see the signature. And the same with carvings. And yeah, they'll leave a little, just a little sign to say, yeah, I was here. That's oh, me. Oh, yeah, so cool. yeah, yeah. It's fantastic, really. Mm. But, oh, um, I guess you only find that out when you're a conservator often, mm. or a weaver, of course, mm. you know. But it's all about layers. It's the story. It's the stories in the making. Yeah. The, within the family. Yes. How long? How long would it, something like this take to make? Do you think? Oh well, I'm not a weaver. No. But, I mean, you know, so I know <laughs> some a, people have taken. Uh, they might need for a simple cloak. You know, I've talked to people. You know, how much do you, time do you need? Well, they might, might need a year. Mm-hmm. So this one would or be two much years. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, you've also got to gather your kiwi feathers, yeah. don't you? You know, they're not I mean, abundant. Mm-hmm. They might have been then, though. You've got to gather your moka. It takes a lot of time mm-hmm. and a lot of experience too, isn't it? So, and to keep attention on the back of your kaupapa on the backing is fantastic. You can tell a good weaver by the tension, you know, on the in the rows and uh in the in the um distance that they are from each other and and the the just the you can see all the perfection on the back of a cloak and the kopapa. It's extraordinary. That's a perfect perfect as well in the, in the back of it, you know. It's as beautiful as it is on the front. This deep dive tackles a different subject to our usual deep dives. This time, we're taking a deep dive on the legal protections of objects, such as kahukiwi. But first, we want to plug a brilliant book on the subject. Afina Tamarapa Fatu Kakahu 
Mouldy Cloaks, an award-winning book celebrating the science and art of mouldy weaving, published in 2020. It focuses on the largest collection of mouldy cloaks in the world, which are housed in the storerooms of Te Papa Tongarewa Mouldy Collections. Back to the legal issues around the selling and repatriation of protected objects and taonga tuturu, like the kahukiwi. First, some history. The colonisation of Aotearoa resulted in a significant loss of our cultural objects through a combination of force, trade and gifts. In the days of empire, this resulted in the rapid dwindling of the artefacts of indigenous populations. In the early 20th century, our government enacted the Māori Antiquities Act 1901 to curtail the serious problem. However, some members of the New Zealand Legislative Council considered this fix was too late, given the significant losses of the prior decades. The Honourable W.T. Jennings, citing a Māori proverb, said, What is the use of the body when the man's head is cut off? What's worse, this legislation and subsequent versions of it, including the Antiquities Act 1975, had numerous issues that led to more objects being lost. In 2006, the Antiquities Act became the Protected Objects Act. Along with its name change, there were other important amendments. While the Antiquities Act had provided for a system of domestic control of the export of cultural heritage objects, it did not provide a means to recover objects that were illegally exported, had weak penalties and other shortcomings. Over time, this legislation was amended to address these shortcomings and strengthen the protections, including by creating higher penalties for any breaches. Unsurprisingly, the protection of objects is still a contested area. In August 2023, a kahu kiwi cloak from the mid-1800s, broadly identified as originally belonging to Te Arawa and Waikato Iwi, was repatriated from Australia where a Sydney family had possessed it. The family understood that their great-great-grandfather in Adelaide had bought it. The kahu kiwi was privately sold for $72,895 at auction, despite a strong argument for it being gifted, instead, to a public institution. The successful bidder for the kahu kiwi has not been disclosed. The upside is that once repatriated, the kahu kiwi was registered under the Protected Objects Act, which prohibits its export and limits any subsequent sales to registered collectors of Tanga Tūturu. Now, back to our interview with Rose. You're listening to Inside the Jewel Box. I have become quite obsessed by sand bottles, bottles of um, silica sand from um, Rotorua in this case and um, so strangely enough at auction I saw three that some that had come up they were from the 60s and I bought them immediately I couldn't believe they were quite cheap of course I realised that no one really has any sense of value and then I got this at auction which is a really old one because it's got the sort of leather top and, and you know it says underneath it all Kia from Rotorua. But so I thought I'd talk about that because, um, you know, it doesn't have any value, but 
it, it's the memory embedded in it, I think, that's significant. And, um, uh, and it's about, um, I suppose, my childhood, really. Just, it just, um, it, it's, it's essentially, it just describes that. You know. And what about your childhood? Okay. Well, when we, I, we, we was, I was four, my, what we used to do was we'd, um, to give my mother a bit of a rest, there were six kids, mum and dad, um, we would go to THC hotels. Now, that was the, um, what is that? That's the Tourist ho uh, Hotel Corporation that was developed in, I think, the late 50s, and it was really a buzz in the 60s. Um, these fantastic hotels up and down New Zealand and um, uh, the Hermitage was one. But this one we went to was, we stayed in this time at Takanu and um, and had a sort of, I think it has a kidney-shaped hot pool in the middle and then um, it had like 29 rooms. I checked up, I thought, is that still running? And um, I've noted that recently a... Um, a guy has bought it with his, I think, 11 children. He's bought it. Um, is he Metikingi? I think he is. And he's bought it and he's got 20 great-grandchildren uh, and they're all in the trades and they're going to do it up. And it's going to come back to its five-star rating. Because I remember going there and um, I have great memories of it, white starched tablecloths in the, kit, in the dining room and little bread um, buns in the, in the baskets, et cetera, and waiters and brilliant in a hot pool. It was really incredible. So what we did is we went into Rotorua We went up for, on that trip. We went and stayed there. Then we went up to Rotorua and we um, we went to uh, Fakarewarewa, and we um, we would we would we bought that bottle there, and we bought a I think a, a um, wahaika, a club, you know, and it was a heavily carved at the time. Anyway, and this was tourist. This was tourist, the best type of tourism in New Zealand you know, in those days. And we were an interesting family because we, my father was uh, Pākehā, he was a Welsh New Zealander, he called himself, and my mother was Māori. So we were in that time of assimilation, you know, big time assimilation. We were seen as a very successful assimilated family. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that with a sense of irony, looking at it from, you know, 2023 20, perspective. But so we went on these big trips and we'd go to all of these locations. And so we were taken around and by guide Rangi and we were given a fantastic tour because we'd all be wearing the same clothing, the children, that is. We'd all be wearing some, I don't know, sailor suits or... All matching, or we'd have, um, we all got kilts because my mother pretended that she was half Scottish because <laughs> it was better to be Scottish than because she was half French. It was much better to be Scottish than French. I think it had to do with being being from a devout Māori Anglican background. You didn't want to even have a hint of the possibility of Catholicism in there. Anyway, so totally denied it. Um, but nevertheless, that was true. So we were we had kilts and 
jackets and everything else, and we were like, we went down in a row, you know, <laughs> a, a vertical like line. We really, we, we, yeah, or um, what is it? My the sound of music. music. It was a bit like that. And um, I was the little baby. Anyway, she took us around. I have a photo of Mum and and Gaidrangi and on my phone. I should find that. And um, and it was um, a fantastic trip. It just it just really really reminds me of that period in history of being um, of being. Um, uh, this sort of cross-cultural family, and yet, and things have changed so much from that time, and um, but uh, yeah, so it's really about a moment in time that these souvenirs, because these souvenirs represent that start of a successful New Zealand economy, tourism starting up, people travelling, and uh, the opening up of New Zealand into the international sector or tourism sector and it was a time where um, you know there, there was only a, a small amount of um, uh, you know cross-cultural intermarriage but you know we have really moved a long way since there where we're you know people are, are being able to you know what is it envisage the notion of mana motahake you know finding their own way that wasn't possible then so and just going back to the set the colors the colors are fantastic yes. aren't they you can't do they can't do these anymore because of course this is that's taking a natural material from a historic site or where did the you can't the yeah. silica come from well from the geyser land and so yeah. it's what do they do to well, I just well, well, they're just the so different soil colours, and that's all that. And then scrape it, and yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, now you can. I guess it's it's the it's the colours that you can get from grinding up um, rocks, and these are natural, you know, yes. natural forming colours from the, the the silica layers, and um, and some people did it as a this this. This was for sale, but look at it. It's pretty shonky, really. It's just a, like a tube, and people would do that themselves. People become quite proficient at creating landscapes with silica. It sort of even references back to the um, pink and white terraces. Yeah, it does. It? I mean, it's absolutely. Look at that. Look. That's a little geyser. Isn't that extraordinary? It is. I don't know how they did it personally. I, I think it's far too complex. But maybe what they did here is they just laid that, they had another one. Well, how did they get that to go up like a hill? Who knows? Or oh, they filled it up a little bit here. I suppose it's not that complex. And maybe they drew a pen up through here or a, mm. a stick up through here so you got the geyser coming up through the sky. I mean, that's that's almost a landscape in a bottle, a three-dimensional. But most of them were just layers. Most of, of them the, were just layers. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is this is, this is pretty extraordinary. But you should <laughs> see some of them. You can see them on Etsy and stuff, these new ones that they're developing. They're outrageous. I don't know how they do it. But that's pretty That's pretty good. I think I've got, I've got a one with... Um, I've got one here because I think I'm now... I think I'm now starting to, it's now starting to get out of control. And uh, you know what happens with collecting? Yes. And so I found this, oh my God, I said kauri gum. 
So that's spun kauri gum and ground kauri gum. See, that's, that's really just layers. And I thought, look, Rose, that's not silica. But I thought, no, I'm going to buy it. I don't care. I'm moving on. I'm moving out. I'm getting into my... I'm getting back that crazy hunger that I used to have when I was younger where I used to just buy anything that had something to do with the first thing I collected. And then it can get out of hand. But you don't see these often. No. You really don't. What happened to the bottle I got that day? Oh, actually, we only got one bottle for the whole family. <laughs> so we had a sort of like a, you know, collective ownership in our family. But someone would have pinched it, like my brother, and he would have sneaked it out or lost it or something. So it's also you sort of, uh, if you had that many siblings, you're in, in, the, in the present taking your bit. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I, you know, look, you can get that many siblings and in those days you didn't really have a whole lot of your own things. I mean, I got all those hand-me-down dolls as well. I never got a doll. And so when it, when it came to dispersing them, there was nothing left for me because I had everyone else's doll. Rose, you've made up for it. I'm making up for it because, look, I've got a whole house of crap and, um, and now I'm going to leave it to my daughter. And she's going to say, just get a truck, fill it up and dump it. That's what she's going to do. Sad, isn't sure. it? Oh, she says, I don't want that. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, maybe that's what it is. It's just like never having anything um, in the family because I was the baby. Um, now I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to buy as much of this as I can, as many volcanic sand bottles that I can get my hands on. But, but you know, I mean, for me, I, I, I was looking for them on Trade Me Etsy because I just desperately wanted that bottle. This was a few years ago, and I met a couple in Rotorua, and I was there, and I said, hey, do you know where I could get a sand bottle? Oh, no, you can't make those anymore. You know, it's, it's, it's illegal. We, we should ask our readers, our listeners, if anyone out there has knows, any. has, get in contact with us. Yeah, well, this, this, this couple I saw in Rotorua, they said, yeah, we collect them. Whenever they come up, we get them. And I said, well, would you contemplate maybe just giving me one of your second-rate ones? No. No, they said, no, nah, we snatch them up as soon as we can. And they had, we've got quite a big collection. They might have been lying. Who knows? <laughs> They had quite glee in their face when they said that to me. But, um, yeah, it must be a certain age group too, you know, who went through that tourist thing. It's not like it is now, of course. Now, let's go for a deep dive and pick up on several of the strands of our discussion with Rose. While this domestic tourism was curtailed during the war, the post-war years saw an absolute uptick in domestic tourism. However, the obstacles were numerous. Even in the 1950s, the government still didn't see tourism as a moneymaker. It couldn't shake the idea off that we were an agricultural country that was too isolated for international tourists to travel to. International hotel chains didn't want to set up here either because of our strong labour laws and tight restrictions on trading at the time. This led to the government establishing the Tourist Hotel Corporation, THC, in 1955, 
1973, there were a chain of them, from Waitangi to Milford Sound, including Rotorua and the Hermitage Mount Cook. While these hotels were unprofitable right up until the mid-1980s, they set elevated standards for all hotels that followed. Long-haul flights, beginning in the 60s, brought mass tourism to the country. In 1962, the government purchased the remaining 50% share owned by the Australian government in Tasman Empire Airways, Teal, making the company a fully New Zealand-owned and operated air carrier. In 1965, Teal changed its name to Air New Zealand, built a new airport at Mangere and purchased three DC-8 jets. Let's zoom in to the thermal area of Rotorua. Until 1886, the climax of a visit to this country was a tour of the stunning pink and white terraces, which were recognised as one of the eight natural wonders of the world before they were destroyed. As early as the 1830s, Māori woman guides, selected by the local hapu, Tuurangi, toured curious missionaries and traders around the geothermal area. Guides Sophia Hinirangi and Kate Middlemass became very famous and they were sought-after guides and they were mentors for other Māori women guides to follow. In the early 1900s, the government took control over many of these sightseeing areas. The Thermal Springs District Act of 1881 and the subsequent government purchase of land beside Lake Rotorua in 1890, followed by the purchase of Whakarewa Rewa Village in 1893, effectively made the government the owner of the country's prime resort. In the pink and white terraces era, wealthy tourists wanted mementos. Some of the earliest souvenirs were everyday objects made extraordinary by setting them in silica from the terraces. Then from the late 1880s to the early 1900s, right up until the 1930s, mass-produced fine china, manufactured in Germany, Austria, the UK, even the Czech Republic, all featured Rotorua places and landscapes. In 1952, 20,000 tourists visited Rotorua. A decade later, the number had jumped to 90,000. And then, another 10 years, in 1975, it had leapt to 500,000. This is the era when Rose's family visited. Today, Rotorua remains one of our country's tourism centres, attracting over 3 million visitors each year. Tafari Taonga o Te Arawa Rotorua Museum boasts a collection of souvenirs from Rotorua that became mass-produced over that time. Going forward, the museum curators are really keen for the public to help fill the gaps in the collection from the mid-20th century onwards. If you or your whanau have any items that may fill these gaps, please contact them. And silica sand bottles, well, Rose is your person. Now, back to our interview with Rose. You're listening to Inside the Jewel Box. Okay, last one is uh, I'd always what I would want, and I would have always wanted a, um, a walking stick or 
as it's also known a tukutuku, but not in the traditional sense, by Jacob Heberly. Now, he was um, the product of um, uh, uh, Heberly, was it um, James Heberly, who was a whaler, and his Te Atiawa wife, I don't have her name, actually, and he um, was that person out of water, almost. Yes, yeah, so he was a... Um, one and the other. He was born um, in the 1860s and he died in the early 1900s. And the reason I know about his work is because um, I, tra- you know, trained in Australia to do conservation and I came back and I went to work at the National Museum and we had, there were very large holdings of Jacob Heberly, as well as his nephew, Thomas, who he trained. But the most important thing about this is that he just didn't have any training. He had to self, he had self-taught himself. And he, um, so his style is really formal and very fine, and it's very characteristically his. And he has been said that he sort of started up or he initiated or he encouraged that tourism market. Here we are again with tourism. Um, And uh, of uh, the tourist pieces, but they were mainly for, you know, visiting statesmen or royalty. So, um, or, um, you know, like Richard Seddon had, I think, a kumite or a wakahuia. So he carved wakahuia, um, kumite, like vessels with lids, um, tukutuku, um, pipes, smoking pipes. You've probably seen them. They're really finely carved and they're beautiful, but they don't have associated whakapapa. They don't have, um, like, ancestor figures in them. They are made for the wearer or the user. And, um, and so they aren't in a traditional sense. They're completely new and modern for that period, and they they started up this enormous interest in uh, tourist wear. And, he, and, you know, people always talk about Tini Waitere and his carving, and he's the best tourist, you know, the carver of tourist wear. But, in fact, he came from a very traditional background and was taught by a tohunga, you know, wero, taroi, and he represented his Ngāti Tarawhai background, whereas... Whereas uh, Jacob Heberly didn't, you know, he was just his own man, and he just went ahead and he this most spectacular style of carving, and so prevalent now in collections, but particularly in the Wellington region because he's from that area, you know, from from being Tiatiawa from that area. He was on Patone and he would have been up there when a number of my Fano were there as well, so we were related. And he and his nephew, I think his nephew Thomas, who who was the carver for the National Museum or Dominion Museum at the time that I ended up working in as the National Museum that then became to Papa. Um, he a lot of his works and Jacob's works were in our collections, on, and and they were also they carved parts of like Partaka if there were pieces missing or you know, pie pie or whatever else there was. So you see they're, they're very much enmeshed in the Tapapa collections now. And, um, yeah, so it's quite, I thought he was quite radical as a man and he must have been, 
uh, it must have been a, an odd thing to do to self-teach, but also not to have, not to associate yourself with the traditional tikanga. And he would have known to have done that so that he could sell it to patrons. And presumably those patrons are putting them on wall. They're not... No, they don't use, use them. Use them functionally. They're no. putting them on a... They might have used the walking sticks. They might have used the... and But they wouldn't be using them for, like, a wakahui where you hang it up in your whare. They'll be a beautiful... Um, you know, they're over-carved and over... So sometimes they're a little overwrought, and they'll be up on your, you know, parlour side table or something of and and sometimes um private um uh owners come in to me and say can you fix this or can you fix it and if it's a heavily I go yes please so I finished one during COVID I did a wakahuya for a, a private um person you know for a, an owner and that had come down through the generation so they're now family heirlooms and not many of families would have those and 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 you know he um died and he buried in Karori cemetery you know where I was brought up as well so I always look for these connections and um so he only died when he was about 56 so he was quite a young and man and are there and any young carvers that are sort of Referencing back to his not really yeah well they might be but I don't think so because he um he did become a um very well known um carver and I but I think now people want to reference their own carving styles I've got to remember that down at that time uh, Taranaki carving which he would have you know come from was starting to. Uh, you know, with with colonisation, you know, like loss of land, etc. But also with Tafiti, you know, he he wouldn't allow people to carve. So the carving styles for Taranaki um, deteriorated, and the and, and you know now it, it it's only going through a regeneration now with say um the Motunui panels that have come back from the Ortiz collection. You know, that's come back and as, as a perfect a perfect um example of that serpentine Taranaki style of carving. There's very little of it in in New Zealand because they were you know, they were uh, you know, a lot of them are swamp vines where they were hidden hidden in the swamp areas in Taranaki and they've only been found when they were draining it for for dairy and the, oh, sorry about the dog um, when they were draining it for dairy in the 60s and stuff they found a lot of um, a lot of t uh, carvings of Taranaki style were found then so you know you see a whole lot of tuhoa, you see a lot of aroa you see all these different carving styles but you don't work, get to work on Taranaki. And when I do, I jump at it. It's quite a different style of carving. So so he didn't represent that. He had a very formal approach where he probably quite purposefully created his own style using some tradi traditional motifs, but he didn't. He did. He would have done that on purpose because he would have probably been pretty steeped in the old ways. 
And would some of his works be in museums and private collections in the UK? Uh, possibly. Oh, yeah, well, of course they would because they were um, they um, were collected, they were given as tokens to royalty. So, yes, absolutely, they'll be in, they'll be in those private collections. Yeah, in those private family, royal, you know, family collections or state collections, but not, but, uh, yeah, probably not in museums, I don't know. And what's the wood that his ones are made? What are they made from? I mean, I think pretty much it's reasonably standard for him to have used tortura because it's a nice wood to use. And, um, but, you know, in the old days with tukutuku, they might be black maidi or something where you have to be really tough. But um, but I don't think in this case because there are more ornamental types of, of of items. You know, you you you're not sort of doing your big five corridor and then putting your uh, uh, sixteen tons of you know weight on it like you would if it was a a tukutuku on the marae. You know, I've had a few of those come in to get mended, and you have to treat them in a different sort of way because they still have to take the weight and um, of the user when they're when they're performing or they're doing their when they're doing their walk and talk and yeah you know and if in a, a scenario you did have a Jacob yeah where would you put, where, where would where would I'd put see? it with all my other ones <laughs> um you know, I wouldn't mind collecting. You see, this is the thing. I don't collect anything, as I said, I don't, with any whakapapa or provenance, right? So, but I do have this. I'll show you this for instance. I just put it out in my... I put it out in the hallway because, um, you know, it's not where any food is or anything like that. So this one, this is a little tukutuku, which I rather like. But this was from Mum and Dad's, and um, and it was just there, and it was, and it, and it had, and it was only half one because it had been burnt. So I've just recreated that for myself. You know, I haven't recreated the carving there, but that's a lovely walking stick. See? Do you use it? No, because no. I don't need to. So I just put it up on the wall. And, and it's okay for me to have that because that's from Mum, so that's okay. She would use them a lot. She'd use a lot of walking sticks when she got older and I always liked to have a nice carved Māori one, so I've got a few actually from here. Waiting. <laughs> What's <laughs> Waiting. that? Waiting for Waiting. me to get old and then I'll give it to patients. Now, let's go for a deep dive on Jacob Hebele. Jacob Hebele, also known as Hakopa. Hepiri was of Māori descent, identifying with the Te Ati Awa Iwi. As a carver, he developed a distinctive personal style, with some resemblance to early Te Ati Awa work, and to contemporary Rotorua carvings which addressed the needs of a colonial art market. Thanks to his skills and prominence in official circles, Māori carvings became accepted as powerful symbols of the new nation serving as appropriate gifts. 
In the 1900s, Heberley was commissioned by the New Zealand government and private European benefactors to create many Māori carvings, such as bowls and tokutoku, walking sticks, none of which depicted his tribal ancestors or were used to define the identity of the owners of the pieces. Among these pieces were gifts for the coronation of Edward VII and Alexandra commissioned by the Premier of New Zealand, Richard Seddon, namely a tokutoku and a carved wooden frame for the coronation address to be stored inside. Several pieces such as model waka and pataka storehouses were commissioned for Lord Ranfurly and his wife, as well as the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall and York during their royal tour of 1901. Heberly was born in Wellington on the 11th of April 1849, the son of James Heberly, an English-German whaler from Devon who came to Queen Charlotte Sound in 1830, and his wife, Te Wai, also known as Mata Tinaihi of Te Ati Awa. Apparently self-taught with no strong links to any carving schools, Heberly likely began carving in the late 1860s while living in Pitone. He moved to Greytown in the Wairarapa in 1877, where he met his wife, Sarah McLaughlin, who he married that same year. Together, they had eight children. After his father's death in 1889, Hibberley's nephews, Thomas and Herbert Hibberley, moved in with his family, and under his mentorship, they both became accomplished carvers. Heberly died in Wellington on the 28th of June 1906 and was buried at Karori Cemetery. Thank you for listening to Inside the Jewel Box. To see images of the works we've talked about in this episode, please see our Instagram, Inside the Jewel Box. Thank you to Rose Evans. Rose is such a great conversationalist with such great stories and we are fascinated by the twists and turns in her family history. Thank you also, as always, to our sound person, Mitchell Innes, and a big thank you to our listeners.